0: And so here we are again, in the room of an old, feeble, sick, dying Jacob. His life of faith is coming to an end. Faith for him is about to give way to sight. Jacob's God has been gracious to him, faithful to him. Jacob is now about to enter the fullness of God's presence. All of Jacob's life of trouble will be hardly worth mentioning in comparison with the glory that he is about to experience as he departs and goes to be with Christ. But not yet. Jacob still has some words yet to speak. These twelve sons are gathered around his bed. God has already enabled Jacob to speak a prophetic word to the oldest four. We have seen together the lesson of Reuben, the lesson of self-control. We have seen together the lesson of Simeon and Levi, the lesson about righteous and unrighteous anger. And now tonight, I'm sorry, we've already seen the wonderful... Messianic prophecy Concerning Judah And the lion that will come From the tribe of Judah And so now there are eight sons That remain to be blessed What will their father say to them? What lies in their future and in the future of their descendants? Certainly each of the sons yet to be blessed is is standing around Jacob's bed and they're each waiting a little bit nervously. What's he going to say to me? Because he's already said some tough things to some of my brothers and some wonderful things to others of my brothers. What's it going to be for me? Our plan tonight is simple. Simple. First, I want to walk through these verses at a fairly brisk pace, explaining some things along the way that might not be so clear and pointing out some things that I think are particularly important in these verses for us to know. And then at the end, I'm going to stress two truths that I see in these verses that I think are particularly helpful to us and our church. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the text And then we're going to end with two truths for us from this text. So let's begin by walking through. Let's begin in verse 13. In verse 13, we have Jacob's words to his son Zebulun. Now, by the way, it's a little bit surprising that Zebulun's prophecy comes next. Because Zebulun is not the fifth son. In fact, Zebulun is the tenth son. But what Jacob seems to be doing here is addressing his sons by their mother. So he is addressing the sons of Leah first. After that, he's going to address the sons of Bilhah and then Zilpah. And then finally, he will address the two sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. But then that still leaves a question. Why is Zebulun next? because his brother Issachar is also a son of Leah and is older than he. So why is Zebulun put first? Well, the answer seems to be that just as Isaac was placed above Ishmael and Jacob above Esau and Joseph above his brothers, Zebulun, though younger than Issachar, is being given prominence over his older brother. In fact, when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, so we're like a decade from now, but when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, we will see there that when Moses blesses the twelve tribes, he blesses the tribe of Zebulun before the tribe of Issachar. Why? Well, Bruce Waltke explains. He says, in both blessings, the one in Genesis and the one in Deuteronomy, Zebulun is the more energetic and prosperous of the two. In fact, Issachar is represented as lazy, submissive, and defeat. This impression is reinforced by other texts. God gives Zebulun priority in drawing the lots for the allotment of land in Joshua. The Song of Deborah celebrates both tribes, but gives Zebulun the priority. Issachar is ignored in the prose account. Zebulun, not Issachar, is listed among those who join Gideon to battle the Midianites. Of the western tribes, Zebulun contributes the largest military contingent to David's army. And its soldiers are characterized as experienced and loyal. So you can imagine Issachar is standing around his father's bed. He's expecting to hear his blessing and suddenly his father moves to Zebulun, before him. Why? Well, like Reuben, Issachar lost his place of prominence. And in his case, it wasn't because of a lack of self-control. It was because of laziness. Issachar's descendants are going to reflect the idleness of his father. And that's why Zebulun is put first. So now let's read verse 13 and what Jacob says to Zebulun. Zebulun shall shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. So this blessing is a true blessing, that is it is a blessing of prosperity from the sea. As Moses puts it in Deuteronomy 33:19, Zebulun shall draw from the abundance of the seas and from the hidden treasures of the sand. And that certainly was to turn out to be the case, though not quite as neatly as it sounds. During the reign of Solomon, this verse comes true in all of its fullness. During the reign of Solomon, Zebulun's tribe, its borders reach all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. But for most of Israel's history, Zebulun's borders are not going to go all the way to the sea because the Phoenicians are going to be in the way. Kids, what did the Phoenicians give us? Remember? The alphabet, alphabet, right? So we think about, when we think about Phoenicians, we think about the alphabet. But the Phoenicians were a thorn in the side of Israel. And God had told Israel, drive the Phoenicians out of the land. Drive the Canaanites and the Hittites and all these foreign peoples out of the land that I am giving to you. But Zebulun stopped short. And because of that, for most of their history, the blessing that was given to them of abundance from the seas became an indirect blessing. They had to do trade with the Phoenicians. They had to work through the Phoenicians to have those blessings from the sea. Now, let's look at Issachar, verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. So Zebulun's prophecy was positive, abundance from the seas. Issachar is definitely not. It's the promise of slavery for Issachar's people. Put simply, Issachar's tribe is a strong tribe, but like their father, Instead of becoming great in their strength, they become apathetic. They become idle. They become content. And they end up accomplishing little. And rather than fighting off the Canaanites in their area, the Canaanites will conquer them and enslave them. Next we move to Dan. Dan is the firstborn son of Bilhah. So now we're leaving the sons of Leah. Okay, we've looked at her six sons. Now we're moving to the firstborn son of Bilhah. This is the fifth oldest son, Dan. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So the first verse there, verse 16, is a pun playing on Dan's name, which means to judge. The point being made here is that though Dan is from one of the concubine wives, nevertheless he's not to be subservient to the other sons. Dan and all of the other sons of the concubine wives are to be treated as true sons, They are to head up their own tribes. They are united to and yet independent from the other brothers. Dan shall judge his peoples as one of the tribes of Israel. You sons of Leah, you sons of Rachel, don't try and make these brothers of yours that are your half-brothers from the concubine wives, don't try and make them subservient. They are equal with you and they have their tribes. Dan is then described as a serpent. His tribe will be small but at times it will strike with surprising power against its enemies. This is probably most especially fulfilled in one of the most famous Danites, Samson. Samson, who comes out of this small tribe, but but by himself brings major trouble to the Philistines. Verse 18 is significant for two reasons. First, as we have seen so many of these prophecies foretell violence and war in the future of Israel with this quick interjection of a prayer Jacob seems to be saying that he is ready to leave this world of hostility and danger Right? Where we, we are a little more than halfway through these prophecies towards his sons, and almost every one of them, in some way, has had to deal with violence, with sin, with death, with, with war. And right in the middle of this, Jacob cries out to God, "I'm waiting for your salvation, O Lord, Take me from this place." It's also significant because verse 18 serves as something of a center line in this poem. Remember, everything that we're reading here is a poem. This is poetic form, which is why it's centered in your Bibles the way that it is. And this poem is very carefully structured, and it represents a very significant moment in Israel's history. And God ordained that at the center of this poem be a call upon Him for true salvation. You see, in the end, all of the military might in this world won't matter if God doesn't bless Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God, Psalm 27. So it's as if Jacob is giving these prophecies about war and violence and some will be strong and mighty and some will be lazy and become slaves. But in the middle of it, he says, by the way, don't forget. Ultimately, salvation comes from the Lord. Put your trust in Him. It's also a a little verse of hope for maybe tribes like Issachar. Verse 19. Verse 19 concerns Gad. Gad is the firstborn of Zilpah. He is the seventh oldest. The verse says, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And this is another example of wordplay. This poem is full of these puns on on the names of the sons. In the Hebrew, this verse is only six words. And four of the words sound like the name Gad. Gad. Um, the ESV tries to help us hear this by repeating that word raid three times, raid or raiding. Uh, what, what you also have to note is that in the Hebrew, the name Gad would also sound like the word for raiding. And so um, maybe the best way that we could say it would be like this. Raider shall raid, raid, but he shall raid at their hills. That's the way it sounds in Hebrew. Gad's name means to raid. This prophecy predicts that the tribe of Gad will have a turbulent history. Sometimes being attacked, other times attacking back. Fighting is going to be a part of life for the people of Gad. Which is why it is no surprise in first Chronicles twelve eight that we read this From the Gadites there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness mighty and experienced warriors, experts with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, they were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Gad is going to be one of those tribes known for producing warriors. Verse 20. Verse 20 in our text concerns Asher, who seems to be the opposite of Gad. Gad is being raided and Gad is raiding others and he's producing warriors. Gad is fighting and meanwhile, Asher is cooking. Verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher was the eighth son born of Zopa. Asher means Happy, as Benjamin Asher Nail can tell you. The tribe of Asher received a specially lush and fertile allotment of the promised land. They had some of the choicest of the lands of Israel, and so they farmed that land well, and they became strong in, in providing rich delicacies for the kings of Israel and Judah to enjoy. Verse 21 concerns the last of the concubine wives, Naphtali. He was the second son of Bilhah. He was the sixth oldest. This prophecy says, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. This comparison to a doe is continuing Jacob's use of animals in his prophecies. We've already seen a lion and a donkey and a serpent, and and now we have a son compared to a doe, which is strange, isn't it? A son compared to a doe. But the picture here is of grace, of beauty, of swiftness and agility, and especially of freedom. Now, some commentators think that this was meant to be interpreted militarily, Uh, We see, especially in the book of Judges, that the men of Naphtali play a vital role in assisting Barak and Deborah as they fight Sisera and the Canaanites in the fields. And and we particularly emphasize in the book of Judges that this battle was on the fields. And so the tribe of Naphtali, like Doe in the field, swift and agile, able to do much militarily. It is also possible, though, that that this prophecy speaks to the artistic and the poetic abilities that God would give the tribe of Naphtali. This seems like it might be the case because that word fawns in the Hebrew sounds just like the word for words. And so using the analogy of a deer, Jacob seems to be saying that this tribe is going to bear beautiful words, perhaps in song. So finally, we have Joseph and Benjamin, the two sons of Rachel. Joseph... Who, through the adoption of his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, has now been given the firstborn position as the longest prophecy of all the brothers. Let's read verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So this prophecy is blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Verse 22 is a blessing of fruitfulness. It's playing on Joseph's son's name, the son Ephraim. Remember Joseph's mother, Rachel, was barren. And then God opened her womb. And now she has given birth to Joseph, who is going to become the most fertile and fruitful tribe of all of them. Verses 23, 24, 25 speak of strength and agility. The idea is that even though Joseph's tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, are going to be attacked in many ways, just as their father Joseph was attacked in many ways, nevertheless, these tribes are going to remain strong and steadfast just like Joseph, remain strong and steadfast. These tribes will not be strong and steadfast in their own strength. We're told it's the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of Jacob. He is going to be the one who holds them up. This is not a prophecy about self-reliance. This is a prophecy about tribes that are going to grow strong because they humbly trust and rest in the power of God. Verse 25 speaks of Joseph's tribes being blessed with blessings from above and blessings from below. It is a merism, right? One of those statements we talked about a couple weeks ago where it's, it's both extremes, right? From as far as the east is from the west, right? Blessings from above, blessings from below. The idea is that blessing is going to be coming on Joseph from every direction. No good thing is going to be withheld from Joseph. And by the way, it should be pointed out that this is true for everyone. Who knows Joseph's God? This verse also speaks of the blessings of the breast and the blessings of the womb. And this reiterates the promise of fertility and fruitfulness that's given in verse 22. And it also indicates the promise of good health. In verse 26, Jacob is declaring that the blessings he is now giving are mightier than the blessings of Abraham or Isaac. Jacob is saying, these blessings that I give to you, they are going to come to pass, and they are going to come to pass in great strength. This is particularly true of Jacob's desire for Joseph. Jacob's desire is that Joseph be more greatly blessed than ever Abraham was, Isaac was, or even he himself was. Joseph has been a man of faith who trusted God through incredible trials, and now his father is saying, I want you to flourish preeminently with the blessings of the everlasting hills. And remember, our study began with dreams in which God revealed to Joseph that he would be placed above his brothers and even his father and his mother Now Jacob is declaring that Joseph's tribes will have this kind of preeminence. Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be strong and prosperous. They're going to produce great men. Joshua, Gideon, the Messiah, will not come from Joseph. He will come from the tribe of Judah. But great blessings will come through Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, then last but not least, we come to Benjamin, Benjamin is the youngest of them all. He is the second born of Rachel. He was the one that was born as she died. And we have again more animal imagery. Verse 27 says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. The Hebrew here literally says that Benjamin is a wolf that tears. It's a graphic picture of a wolf tearing into its dead prey. The wolf has killed more than it needs and therefore it shares the prey with others. The reference to morning and to evening indicates that this is not just an occasional thing. The tribe of Benjamin is going to be known for its ferocity. It is going to be known for its skill in war. Gad is going to produce some mighty warriors. But bravery is going to particularly mark The tribe of Benjamin, it is going to become the warrior tribe par excellence. It should be pointed out that the Apostle Paul, who withstood so many beatings and stonings and imprisonments and yet continued to be fervent in his preaching of the gospel, he was a Benjamite. Now, we've walked through these verses briskly, as I promised. And after hearing these things, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's all very interesting. I can see why this passage would have been uh, of of great interest to to the Jews of old. What does it have to do with us? When we remember that the Old Testament nation of Israel was a visible picture of the true Israel, the kingdom of God, the church in every age, suddenly this passage has everything to do with us. The formation of ancient Israel teaches us about the formation of the church. Ancient Israel as a nation is a picture, a shadowy, imperfect picture of what God is doing perfectly and completely in His church. And so to illustrate that, let me give you two truths from this text that I think ought to affect us. And the first is this. There is great diversity in the kingdom of God. There is great diversity in the kingdom of God. The nation of Israel was composed of men very different from one another. And they each produced tribes with their own unique characteristics. Notice the diversity in their backgrounds. Some were born of Leah. Some were born of Bilhah. Some were born of Zilpah. Some were born of Rachel. And yet they were all included in the people of God. And this is the way it is with us in the formation of the church. God calls to be a part of this family people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Some had advantages, like the sons of Rachel. Some come from more disadvantaged backgrounds, like the sons of Bilhah or Zilpah. Some are born in the best of families, some in the lowest of families. Some had the gospel preached to them since they were in their mother's womb. Others didn't hear the gospel at all. The only time they heard the name of God used in their household was when Dad was cursing. And yet, God calls people from all of these different backgrounds and brings them together into one church. Then, notice the diversity in personality and the diversity in the assignments that God gives them. These sons are not alike. We have one that struggles with self-control. We have another that struggles with anger. We have one that is growing up and learning to lead. We have sons who are gifted at war, sons who are gifted at farming and agriculture and cooking. We have sons who are gifted at poetry and the arts. God has sovereignly calls all of these sons with their unique gifts and their unique personalities to be one nation. He has made them different on purpose. And it is no accident that they receive the portion of the promised land that they receive. Benjamin, he must be a ravenous wolf. If you see the land that he's going to have, it is going to be, just because of where it is geographically, a center of warfare. Asher needs to be one who cooks well and knows agriculture well because of the land that God's going to give him. Different personalities, different assignments, and yet the wisdom of God is at work in exactly how these sons are placed to form the nation of Israel, and the church is like that. This is the way the kingdom of God works. There is such a wide variety of personalities and talents and giftedness and assignments in the body of Christ, but it's all by design. Remember these words from 1 Corinthians. The body does not consist of one member but of many if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, well that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is... God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, and yet one body. So friends, I would ask us, what is our role in the church of Christ? What is your role? Why has God fashioned you the way He's fashioned you? Why has He given you the gifts and the strengths that you have? And are you using them for the upbuilding of us all? Now, by the way, don't think that this has to be programmed. I'm I'm not asking, think about your strengths and then immediately find an official role that fits that strength. Rather, I'm saying, just look at the talents and the gifts that God has given you. The places where, where you have more grace than maybe others do. How are you using that to bless your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is God working through you and your unique personality and gifting for the benefit of us all? Calvin made the point that our different spiritual gifts are almost like different spiritual sounds. He said that the church is like an orchestra and we've all been given the ability to play a role. Not everyone plays every instrument equally well. But when each person is doing what he or she does best, and the Lord Jesus is conducting, the result is something that is beautiful and harmonious. We are different in our gifts. Yet as we work together, we bless one another. And we bless others. Now this diversity should remind us that we should not expect every person in our church to be like us. Just the opposite. We should celebrate that we are different from one another. We should celebrate that not every member is a hand or a toe or a nose. We love our differences. We respect our differences as long as they are not sinful. We see the wisdom of God in the way He has composed the church. The second truth I want us to see from these verses is that there is great unity in the kingdom of God. Yes, great diversity, and yet great unity. Not every one of the brothers got to be a Judah, Or a Joseph. And frankly, some of them received prophecies that were hard to bear and probably painful to their souls. God's will for some of the brothers was that their lives and the lives of their descendants in this world would not be nearly as noble or as glorious as some of the others. But in the end, whatever role each brother was given, each one was a part of the nation of Israel, they were all included. They were all included in God's holy nation, set apart from every other people on earth. Each and every one of them was included, and not because they deserved this citizenship. No, just just the opposite. They were born into it. This was there simply because they were born into it. God caused this to happen. And Dear friends, that's how it is with us. Our lives are very diverse. And some in our church family are going to find their lives to be much harder than others in our church family. And some in our church family are going to have days where where they feel like they're living for the most noble and glorious purposes, and others are going to look and say, why didn't God let me have those gifts? Why couldn't I have had that noble, glorious purpose? Some of us will look back and realize that our struggles with unbelief and sin have, have kept us from doing much good at all, and we're going to regret that so much of our lives were wasted, and And we'll think, God, why couldn't I have been a Moses? Why couldn't I have been a Paul? But in the end, we can all rejoice that in whatever role we were given, we are all children of God. We are all united together in this family. We are all citizens of this kingdom, the greatest kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom where righteousness will dwell forever and ever. Be we great or small, be we strong or weak, be we mature in the faith or just a newborn in the faith, we're included. And that ought to bring us great encouragement. I may not be very gifted, and my life may be one of suffering and of foolish mistakes. But in the end, by grace, I belong to God. And I don't deserve to be a part of this great nation, this kingdom, this thing called the Church of Christ. But I was born into it. The Holy Spirit through the Gospel caused me to be born again. And now I am a brother with the greatest of all, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the apostles. Indeed, I have been born into a family in which I am a co-heir with Christ Himself. Dear church, like these 12 brothers that we have just read about and the tribes that come from them, the church of Christ is very diverse, but it is one church indwelt by one spirit. We are all saved by the same grace heading for the same heaven where we will worship the wondrous same God. It is the kingdom of Christ that is truly one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And so as a part of the Church of Christ, we should embrace both the diversity and the unity that we have in the kingdom of God. Let us see the glory of God's wisdom in designing the church as He has. And let us embrace the little role that God has given us, whatever it might be. Just thankful that by the blood of Christ we're included. Amen? Let's pray. Father, my...